Please join me for the prayer for illumination. Guide us, O God, by your word and Holy Spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and your will discover peace through Christ our Lord. Amen. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1 to 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hosts all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but the face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of the Lord. In our preaching series this fall, we're looking at what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Last week, we looked at the big picture in Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, where he introduces the fruit of the Spirit. And we learned that Paul's agricultural metaphor there was very intentional. Spiritual fruit uh, comes from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is the energizing power for a Christian's growth and maturity and, and love. At the same time, we saw that we have a responsibility uh, to cultivate this fruit through repentance and faith, putting to death our old ways of the flesh and putting on the character of Christ. You may remember that last week, I ended with the story of the velveteen rabbit. Uh, this is the stuffed animal who asks the skin horse in the story, what is real? And the horse replies, Real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. It takes a long time. By the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I'm just going to keep telling that story. I really like it. I, I love this story uh, because it captures so well 
uh, I believe, what we're talking about in this series and, and what it means to grow as people of character. So often, we confuse character with skill or success, things that can be seen on the outside. We confuse the gifts of the Spirit with the fruit of the Spirit. But just being a person of great accomplishment does not mean that you are necessarily a person of character. You can have a lot of education and not be a person of character. You can be highly intelligent and not have the character of Jesus. You can know a lot about the Bible and not have character. We could go on and on. The reality is, the measure of your character is love. Your character is revealed in how well you love. A life of love it is, is what is most lasting and real. On the outside, you might get very loose in the joints and very shabby. Uh, but if you have the character of Christ, you actually have what is most real and most lasting. As Paul says in the final verse of our text today, so now, faith, hope, and love abide. They last. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So let's talk about love today. There's a reason why love comes first in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. All the fruit of the Spirit require love. As Paul says in Colossians 3.14, over all the virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So as we consider 1 Corinthians 13 today, what can we learn about love together? There are three things. First, we see the importance of the motivation of love. For Christians, love should be the motivation for everything we say and do. Second, love is not just an inner feeling. It's about concrete actions taken on behalf of others. This is the activation of love. Third, Paul invites us to, to, to discover God's goal for us uh, in love. It's not just our starting point. It's our ending point, our destination. So three things today. The motivation of love in verses 1 to 3. The activation of love in verses 4 to 7. And the destination of love in verses 8 to 13. So let's start with the motivation of love. In verses 1 to 3, Paul says that any human skill or power or knowledge, or spirituality, or good deeds are meaningless apart from love. This is a radical point of view. Some of us uh, are inclined to be socially engaged. Uh, others of us uh, may be concerned for traditional values. But the test of our character, Paul says, is not whether we're holding the right position on some issue, but whether those around us experience love through our words and our actions. He says even here 
that you could display the ultimate act of social justice by giving away all that you have for the poor. But if you don't have love, it's meaningless. He says that you could display uh, the ultimate act of religious devotion by dying for your faith, delivering up your body to be burned. But if you don't have love, it's meaningless. It's nothing. This requires us to go beyond the surface to examine the reasons for why we do what we do in every area of our lives. Jerry Bridges, in his book on the fruit of the Spirit, says, Love is not so much a character trait as the inner disposition of the soul that produces them all. He, to see this, he suggests rephrasing Paul's other statements about love to bring out this motivational quality. Uh, like this, I am patient with you because I love you and want to forgive you. I am kind to you because I love you and want to help you. I do not envy your possessions or your gifts because I love you and want you to have the best. I don't boast about my own attainments because I love you and I want to hear about yours. I'm not proud because I love you and want to esteem you before myself. I am not rude because I love you and care about your feelings. I am not self-seeking because I love you and want to meet your needs. I am not easily angered because I love you and want to overlook your offenses. I do not keep a record of wrongs because I love you and love covers over a multitude of sins. This attention to, to love as the inner disposition of the soul challenges us not to settle for shallowness in our relationships or in our obedience. Uh, to do this requires cultivating a, a kind of self-awareness, giving attention to our soul so that we know what is going on inside of us, what is motivating us. Some of us are reading a biography of the Catholic social activist uh, Dorothy Day, written by her granddaughter called uh, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. And one of the things that draws me to Dorothy Day is that she was someone who dedicated her life uh, to serving the poor and the destitute in the most radical way. Her newspaper called The, the Catholic Worker drew attention to injustices in the 1930s and 40s that, that very few people were paying attention to, from lynchings to, to workers' rights. Uh, she started hospitality houses where the poor and those who serve them lived together in community. And throughout her life, she had these very high ideals. From a young age, uh, she was a communist. Uh, she took part in protests and marches as a suffragist. Uh, she was beaten and went to jail. But later in her life, uh, after she'd become a Christian, uh, when she looked back, uh, she felt that there was so much of her own agenda in her service. She saw her motivations in a new way. And here's what she wrote. I do not know how sincere I was in my love of the poor and my desire to serve them. I wanted to go on picket lines, to go to jail, to write, 
to influence others and so make my mark on the world. How much ambition and how much self-seeking there was in all of this. But something changed in her after she came to faith. Uh, she was just as committed to serving the poor, even more so. She was willing not just to serve them, but to live with them. But something changed. Near the end of her life, she explained to someone how she was attempting to write a memoir. And she wrote, I try to think back. I try to remember this life that the Lord gave me. The other day, I wrote down the words, a life remembered, and I was going to try to make a summary for myself, write what mattered most, but I couldn't do it. I just sat there and thought of our Lord and his visit to us all those centuries ago, and I said to myself that my great luck was to have had him on my mind for so long in my life. To have had him on my mind for so long in my life. Now, what changed for Dorothy Day before and after her conversion? In some ways, she did the same things in both seasons of her life. She fought for justice. She served the poor. But as a Christian, she had a new motivation of love. Serving the poor wasn't about her anymore, but about Christ and sharing his love. Her life was a response of love to others for what he had done for her. She was just grateful to have had him on her mind. And the anxiety and the self-centeredness of her earlier service was removed. So the motivation of love is crucial. But this does not mean uh, that love is only about what we feel on the inside. The motivation of love matters, but the activation of love is just as important. Love is not just a feeling, it's an action. This comes through very clearly in verses 4 to 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. These are the, the kinds of verses that as I, as I read them, I think maybe it would just be better if we just sat here for a while, let them work on us. I'm not going to do that right now, but, but let me encourage you to do that later and, and, and throughout this week. So often when we talk about love, we talk in generalizations and platitudes and cliches. But the love that Paul describes here is concrete and specific. Toni Morrison, in her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, Beloved, writes, Thin love ain't no love at all. And the context of this quotation makes it even more powerful. Beloved is a, a tragic story about a runaway slave woman in the 19th century named Seth. And it's based on the true story of a, a slave named Margaret Garner, uh, who had escaped from a plantation. In Beloved, the character based on her, Seth, meets another runaway named Paul D., who considers the unconditional love that Seth shows as too risky. 
Paul D. says, For a used-to-be slave woman to love anything that much was dangerous, especially if it was her children she had settled on to love. It was much safer, he says, to love just a little bit. So when they broke its back or shoved it in a croaker sack, well, maybe you'd have a little love left over for the next one. Paul D. says that Seth needs to accept this weak love, and he tells her that her love is too thick. It's in response to this that Seth insists, love is or it ain't. Thin love ain't no love at all. The love that we find in the Bible, in these verses, and in the person and work of Jesus is thick love. Thin love holds on to grudges. It's fearful. It's controlling and, in the end, only really concerned for itself. Thick love is risky. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It's without limit for its concern for the other. How do we become people who are marked by this kind of love? It's not something that we can attain simply through duty and self-discipline. You have to want this love more than anything else and be willing to sacrifice your other desires and wants to it. The role of a scripture like 1 Corinthians 13 is crucial. If you will sit with it, if you'll meditate on it, it will operate like an x-ray machine on your heart, exposing your heart so that you can see what's going on inside of you. But it will also put right in front of you a picture of the kind of love that you find in Jesus so that you begin to want to look more like him. Your natural attitudes and inclinations will begin to stand out. You might see how your love is too thin, but as, as you ask for the Spirit's help, he will enable you to bear this kind of fruit in your life. This isn't something that happens overnight. It's about daily prayer and practice in community with others. I'm reminded of what St. Benedict called his early monastic communities in the 6th century. He called them schools of love. We're not monks, but what if we thought about our church and our household groups as schools of love? Schools of love where we learn how to love like Jesus across all our differences, racially, culturally, socially, politically, this kind of school would require patience and vulnerability, but this is the kind of love uh, that we can practice together here in this community. This brings us to our last point today. We've talked about the motivation of love and the activation of love. Now let's talk about the destination of love, the, the goal in verses 8 to 13. In these verses, Paul's vision expands into the future. In God's future, he says, our present limited insights and abilities and knowledge will pass away 
because they will be fulfilled in the light of God's infinite truth. We are like children growing into maturity, and there are things that we will grow out of, like a young adult giving up certain kinds of games or behavior. But there are three things, he says, that we will not give up. Faith, hope, and love abide. They will last into the future. We begin to taste them in the present, but they will reach their fullest potential in God's new creation. What does this mean? Well, if the essence of faith is trust in Jesus, then when we see him face to face in the future, we won't leave that trust behind. We'll only deepen it. In the same way, in hope, we place our confidence in the God who promises never to leave us or forsake us. When we see him face to face, we will only grow in the assurance of that hope. The same is true of love. In love, we turn away from ourselves towards God and other people. In the new creation, this love will deepen in ways that we can't even imagine now. Paul gives an image in verse 12 that summarizes the dramatic difference between our experience today and what is to come. He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. The image here is of an ancient polished metal mirror that only gave an imperfect dim reflection. But even in a modern mirror, we only see an image indirectly. But Paul says that in the future, we will see God face to face. Let me offer an illustration that may help us understand the power of this image. In 2010, a performance artist named Marina Abramovich, a Serbian artist known as the, the grandmother of performance art, staged a powerful piece in the atrium of the Museum of Modern Art in New York. It was very simple. From early March to May, she sat at a table in the MoMA atrium for six days a week, seven hours a day, 730 hours in total. She didn't speak. She didn't eat. Apparently, she didn't go to the bathroom. She sat at a table, and members of the public were invited to sit across from her. In the three months that she sat there, 1,400 people came and sat in front of her. And she would just gaze at them. That's all she did. She would just look them in the face. Some people would sit for a minute, others for an entire day. And for many people, it was a profound experience. There's a Tumblr page called Marina Abramovich Made Me Cry uh, that collects all the pictures of the faces of people who were weeping while they sat across from her. Now, I don't know what you make of this, but I think this performance piece gives us a, a kind of a window into the deepest longings of the human heart. We long to be seen, to be known and loved unconditionally. And you don't have to go to uh, an avant-garde uh, avant art event to have these kinds of experiences. We have them with friends, uh, with spouses, with therapists. 
And these kinds of relationships, when, when we're accepted just as we are in all our beauty, in our brokenness, and we're loved, nothing is more powerful. This is why Paul says that love is the greatest. It's the only one of the three that is reciprocal. We place our faith in God. God doesn't place his faith in us. We hope in God. God doesn't need to hope in us. But love? We love God. And God loves us in return. In fact, 1 John says, we love because he first loved us. In the person and work of Jesus, we discover the full extent of God's love for the world. When you experience that love, it will overflow you to others. And it has the power to sustain you, even in the hardest circumstances. In a few moments, we're going to sing a song, A Love That Will Not Let Me Go, written by the 19th century Scottish pastor George Matheson. Matheson wrote this song in just a few minutes on the evening of his sister's marriage. Uh, this was a very heart-wrenching time for him. Uh, years before, Matheson had been engaged at the age of 20, but around the same time, he learned that he was going blind and that there was nothing that the doctors could do. His fiancée uh, learned of his diagnosis, and she told him that she could not go through life with a blind man. She left him. He went on to seminary, completely lost his vision, and his sister had been the one to care for him uh, through all these years. He was now 40 years old, and she was going on her way uh, to her new husband. This was the circumstances in which Matheson uh, wrote the song. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. In his heartbreak and his sorrow, he turned to God and he rested in the truth that no matter what, God's love would not let him go. If Jesus had died for him on the cross, then he could trust in his love. Friends, the same invitation stands for each one of us today. Whatever hard thing that you're facing, whatever sorrow or struggle, whatever suffering or setback, know that God's love in Christ is yours. If this is true, then you can let go of control. You can be obedient to God's calling in your life, even when it's costly. You can love others sacrificially, even your enemies, because you know that the Son of God was willing to sacrifice himself for you. You can trust him with your life because he loves you and he will not let you go. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word today. And we ask that your spirit would work in us and through us, that we might display the loving character of Jesus. You know our weakness and 
our need for your grace in this. But we also believe that you can do abundantly more than we can imagine or ask according to your power at work within us. So help us to give as you give, to serve as you serve, and to love as you love. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.